0: All right, we're continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke here in the listener's commentary. And in this session, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 20, verse 41, through chapter 21, verse 4. This is one of those places where the chapter division, this isn't a terrible break, but the stories do seem to connect. And so we're going to span the chapter here. So Luke 20, verse 41, through 21, verse 4. And we're really continuing the conversation that's been happening in... Uh, the preceding sections, where the the Jerusalem leadership has been engaging in various debates with Jesus, in hopes of trapping him to find a reason to arrest him and then hand him over to Pilate. The problem is Jesus bests them at every turn, and so they give up questioning him because they they can't they can't get anything on him. Well. Jesus then has a question for them. So the first half of this section we're looking at is Jesus turning the tables and now questioning those who have been questioning him. And he gives a question that's really trying to get them to read the scriptures more closely so they can understand more who the Messiah was promised and predicted to be. And so one of the things that means for us is that as we read this first handful of verses in this section, is we kind of get an insight into how Jesus understands himself. We see a little bit more of how he thinks about himself. So here's the question that Jesus asks. Luke 20, verse 41 says, But he said to them, so they're not going to question him anymore. But he turns the tables and said to them, Here's this question. How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? Christ means Messiah. So how can they say the Messiah is David's son? The son of David was a popular title for the Messiah. We saw the blind man in Jericho apply it to Jesus. It would imply in Eastern thinking that the Messiah is less than David. Since David was the great king, if uh, David's son... The Messiah was going to be part of his royal line, right? And so he would be a descendant of David. And so since David was the great kingly hero of the Jews and the Messiah would come in his lineage, in their thinking, that necessitated that the Messiah would have to be then in some sense less than David since he was his son. Well, Jesus, therefore, has a question about the Messiah as son of David. And it's an implication from a passage in Psalm 110 verse 1 a psalm that was seen as being about the Messiah by the Jews of Jesus' day. It's a psalm that's quoted quite often in the New Testament because of its messianic implications. So Jesus quotes the psalm, and then he's going to draw out a implication from that related to the Messiah being David's son. So first he quotes the psalm, verses 42 and 43. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Uh, and as noted, this is actually one of the more often quoted Psalms in the New Testament. The first Lord in the Psalm, when it says the Lord said to my Lord, the first Lord in Hebrew, in the Hebrew version of the this Psalm is actually Yahweh, the name of God. And so the way it reads in Hebrew is, Yahweh said to my Lord, Adonai. So Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand. And This psalm is being written by David. And so Yahweh says to somebody who David describes as his own Lord. And that person who is David's own Lord is supposed to sit at Yahweh's right hand until Yahweh makes... Uh, This Lord's enemies, a footstool for his feet. Well, the implication of this is, is huge. Wait, who is David's Lord? And since we all know this psalm is about the Messiah, as all Jews assumed in the first century, then how can the Messiah be David's Lord. So here's how Jesus draws out the implication. Verse 44, therefore, David calls him Lord. And so how can he also be his son? Hmm. Everyone acknowledged this Psalm was about the Messiah. So David calls the Messiah his Lord, but the Messiah is also David's uh, descendant. How can that be? Think on that puzzle. And the point is that the idea of the Messiah must be enlarged. Somehow he's part of David's royal line, but at the same time he's also David's Lord and he will sit at God's right hand as God's right hand man. How can that be? Uh, And that's the puzzle Jesus is really inviting these people who have been questioning him, to think on. And it forces us to realize that the Messiah is, in some sense, greater than David, bigger than David, able to sit at God's right hand in a way that David never truly could. And yet he's also a descendant of David. Both have to be true. And Jesus has obviously meditated on this, and it's helped form his understanding of who he is. Luke continues then in this story and goes on and says in verse 45, And while all the people were listening, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and who love personal greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance' sake offer long prayers. These will receive all the more condemnation. Jesus here offers a critique uh, that aims at their love of power and of importance and of position, all of which have been lying behind their challenges to Jesus. They measure their status and their importance and their identity in the kinds of things that Jesus talks about here. So he says, beware of the scribes one category of religious leader who like to walk around in long robes, uh, probably more referring to like the tassels at the end of their robes, which were a mark of their piety. And so they walk around slowly in long robes with long tassels on them. They love personal greetings. Oh, Rabbi so-and-so, Oh, elder so-and-so, right? They love the personal greetings in the marketplaces because people know them and acknowledge them. They love to sit in the chief seats in the synagogues, those seats of honor that are reserved for people who teach and who lead and who rule in the synagogue. And they have this love of uh, giving those special places. And they love the places of honor to bake one. Sit up here because you're so important. And so all of this speaks of their own love of Uh, prestige and prominence and sense of importance and having people acknowledge that. What's more, they devour widows' houses. Uh, what he seems to be getting at there is that their wealth and power has, has come from taking land and homes from widows rather than standing up for them and protecting them, as the law itself told them they ought to do. That seems to be what he's getting at when it says devour widows' houses. It just refers to this idea of, well, you can't pay your rent or your taxes, so... We'll just take back that house and we will uh, foreclose on it. And it'll be, you know, we'll take it again. and It'll be ours again, right? That rather than actually protecting them. Um, the warning is addressed to disciples. So it's saying, he's not saying this to the scribes. He's saying it to himself. Don't become like them. Don't, don't become like these guys. Watch out for this kind of stuff. Watch out for this false self-serving form of religion. It gets He says, all the more condemnation. Now, this mention of widows and their houses being devoured by these powerful and greedy scribes leads right into the next story that shows up in the first four verses of chapter 21. So let's span the chapters and pick up in Luke 21, verse 1 where Jesus says this, Now he, Jesus, looked up and saw the wealthy putting their gifts into the temple treasury, and he saw a poor widow putting in two lepta coins. And so they're teaching in the temple where all this is going on. Jesus happens to see the rich and the powerful and the wealthy putting all their coins into the temple treasury, dropping in huge, you know, handfuls of coins, emptying out their money bag full of coins into the temple treasury. And then in contrast, here comes a widow, poor, poverty stricken, and she puts in two small coins, literally as translated here, two lepta coins. The temple treasury probably refers to an offering box. The Mishnah actually refers to 13 chests shaped like a shofar horn in various places around the temple to collect offerings. And so if that was the case, even in Jesus' day, we're talking about something like that. And this woman comes and she puts two lepta coins into it. Leptas were the smallest coin in circulation. A, a lepton was worth about 1 128th of a day's wage. Like, virtually nothing. Like, you know, you're talking about less than, like, right, like hardly anything. It it's barely even a penny. A, a common laborer would earn a, a lepton every four minutes of a 10-hour workday. So this is like eight minutes worth of work. That's what she's offering. She's got nothing, eight minutes worth of work. Um, And she is very poor indeed. And she puts in these two coins. And here's what Jesus says about her in verse three. He said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. Then all those wealthy persons dumping in handfuls of coins, emptying their money bags into the offering box, she put in more. Why, verse 4? Well, they all contributed to the offering from their surplus. But she, from her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Her tiny amount, barely anything, stands out because she still gave even though she had virtually nothing to live on. She has nothing to buy bread, nothing to buy an apple, and she still put money in the offering box. And in contrast, those others who in their greed devour widows' houses um, and thus put in large amounts of money, this widow, she gives in trust and worship of God, not sure if she's going to have enough to buy her next meal. And this simple little story helps us see what Jesus values. Jesus doesn't value religious show. He doesn't even value huge gifts, as nice as they are and as helpful as they can be for taking care of the poor and maintaining religious uh, services and practices. Jesus is really not all about that. What Jesus values is humility and faith. And that's what this woman models humility to come and depend on God and trust God, even with her little, and faith that gives itself wholeheartedly. And this woman gave herself wholeheartedly. Here's what I've got, Lord. I've got the two smallest coins I can possibly give. It's all I got. Here, you can have it. So she gives of herself fully and completely and humbly. And Jesus values that. And that's why he points out this woman to his original disciples, and that's why he points them out to us as his disciples, don't be like these scribes who in their self-serving, self-importance and greed uh, go about their, their life and their religious show. No, be like this humble widow who genuinely and sincerely loves God and trusts God and depends on God, even with two small coins. Hey, it's John and I just wanted to remind you that The Listener's Commentary is a crowd-funded Bible teaching project that's made possible by the generosity, the great generosity of all sorts of people. So thanks a ton to those of you who make this ministry possible and who support the Listener's Commentary. And if you have been in some way encouraged by or strengthened by or built up in your faith by this ministry and by this resource, then would you perfectly consider becoming a member of the team of supporters who make it possible? You can go to listenerscommentary.com slash give and set up an amount of whatever you can afford, even if it's only two small Lepta coins. May God bless you, and thanks a ton for supporting the listener's commentary.